0: Well, yeah, yeah, John, well, I'm just going to start uh, at the, the begin, beginning of uh, the chapter again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is the closest relationship with the Father has made him known.
1: Wonderful. I'm going to hand over to Jake. Hey, thanks, Peter, for reading and, um, and Dan as well. Well, um, one of the early church fathers described John, the human author of this gospel, um, as like an eagle. Because in his writing, he says he abides among Christ's sayings of the sublime order and in no way descends to earth but on rare occasions. In other words, John takes us to lofty heights in his teaching. His gospel does not just record the events of Jesus's earthly life and ministry, beginning at his birth in Bethlehem and moving forward. So it's not merely historical. His gospel, and especially this prologue in John chapter one, one to 18, where we find ourselves again this morning, is more like an ancient hymn. Here John begins before the beginning he describes the indescribable, and he meditates on mysteries too wonderful for us to grasp in full. In short, he lifts us up high into the sky to soar like an eagle in the glory of the sun's rays. The problem is, I'm slightly afraid of heights, and anyone who knows me well knows that flying above the clouds reduces me to a nervous wreck, and so I hope that's not our experience today but i do hope and pray that as we're lifted up to contemplate on god and his glory especially through the revelation of his incarnate son here in john's prologue we might be brought higher and closer in our understanding our love and our worship of him so let's pray for that as we begin psalm 27 verse 1 says the lord is my light and my salvation we ask O lord that you would enlighten our hearts that we might be lifted up to see the beauty of your majesty for your glory amen well to reflect the nature of this passage we're going to approach this sermon a bit differently Um, my hope is that it will feel more contemplative and theological than historical and grammatical What we're going to do is meditate on four words or themes that feature in this scripture. And the first is this, light. Reading again from verse six. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. As we heard last week, light is an image from creation. When in the display of his goodness, God spoke into the darkness and void, giving the world he created life. Light and life go hand in hand. and We know that from nature. Those of us who are relatively new gardeners are discovering how plants and flowers grow with light. And the same is true of people, not through photosynthesis like plants, but we also need exposure to proper daylight to keep us going. Otherwise we get low, run down and struggle to rest. It's surely no coincidence that hashtag can't sleep has been trending on Twitter this lockdown. God graciously fills our world with light and life. Each breaking of the dawn the, the dawn is a is a prompt of God's sheer goodness from that moment. Let there be light until now. Yet yeah, that's not all. Because the light that God generates in creation is only the anticipation and a sign of the true light. Sometimes we talk about people being lights or leading lights. I discovered this week that there's a leading epidemiologist whose name is Larry Brilliant. Um, I just think that's a fantastic name for a a leading scientist. He helped to eradicate smallpox. He's a leading light in his field. And there's no doubt that John the Baptist, mentioned here in verse 6, was a leading light. He's one of only two people in the whole of John's gospel who's said to be sent by God. John had a significant, special, prophetic role. Even Jesus describes him as the greatest of all people. But John was not the true light. Because John, like all of us, was made. He was just a creature, and he knew it. That's why he says in verse 15 of our passage, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. The true light can only be the pre-existent source and author of light and life. The true light is the one who gives light. And so right from the outset, there should be no doubt in our minds that when we encounter the person of Jesus Christ, the one this passage is all about, he is utterly unique. He's the true light in the sense that he is, as the creed says, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He is the divine son who eternally proceeds from the father in a few weeks time on trinity sunday we'll come back to that and reflect on it further when we're in john chapter five but for now jesus is also the true light in the sense that he reveals god to us through his mission in the world he came and he took on flesh and he sheds light on the nature of true reality making god known he enlightens us Borrowing words from Psalm 36, in his light, we see light. But, and there is a but, instead of living life in the light, the world has chosen darkness. And so we move to our second word, spite. During Friday's VE Day celebrations, the Queen's speech ended with Vera Ling, uh, Vera Lin singing, "We'll Meet Again." <clears throat> and that was the <clears throat> excuse me that was the wartime hope, and it's the hope of all of us as we sit in front of our screens or on our telephones instead of being with one another in person. I'm sure I speak for all of us in saying that it's going to be so much better when we're together again, to welcome one another at church or in our homes with love. If friends invite us round for tea when it's safe and lockdown is lifted, I'm not gonna say, should we just have tea together on Zoom instead? Or worse, when my mum comes to visit, no doubt with treats and goodies for the kids, we're not going to ask her to put the gifts on the front doorstep before we collect them and close the door, leaving her outside like the pizza delivery driver. She'll be relieved to hear that. No, our reunion will be joyous and wonderful. Yet tragically, ironically, joyful reunion is not how we could describe the world's treatment of Christ when he entered in. Verse 10, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The world that was made through him rejects him. Not the natural worlds, we're not talking about plants and animals and stuff, after all, as Augustine beautifully puts it, did the the creature fail to acknowledge its creator? The sky bore witness with a star. The sea bore witness. It supported the Lord who walked on it. The winds bore witness. At his command, they hushed. The earth bore witness. When he was crucified, it quaked. In other words, the sky, the sea, the winds, and the earth recognized the presence of its creator as they should when he walked among them. But the crowning feature of creation, people made in God's image, did not recognize him. When Jesus himself was not received, what it reflects is the fact that God himself is not received by the world that belongs to him since the fall since our first parents people including the specially chosen recipients of the covenant promises his own in verse 11 and including us too have loved the world instead of god we have not recognized him by the way that's more than intellectual rejection it's not receiving him as we should it's relational ultimately It's rebellion because we turned against our creator in whom we find light and life. Light comes among us. And how do we, the world, react? With spite. Which leads us to the third word to reflect on, right. As in birthright, privilege, legitimacy, or inheritance. And rights are a big feature of our culture. Often that's a really good thing. For instance, Christians played an enormous role in abolishing the slave trade of the 19th century or fighting for civil rights in the 20th century. Because abuse and discrimination on the basis of someone's color is a blatant defacing of God's design for people made in his image. That said, the spirit of our age is to think that we determine what's right and wrong. We determine our rights, not the creator. That we can, can, can control and reshape the world according to our design. We think that others are obliged to give us what we feel we're entitled to. And when we don't get it, we complain and demonstrate. One of the interesting things of the current crisis is how people are realizing, once again, just how out of control we are. We can't protest against the coronavirus. It won't listen to us. We can't control or command creation. Even more so, we cannot control or command the creator. It's not our right. If anything, as those born in Adam, our first father who sinned and rejected God, we deserve condemnation, not blessing. And yet, verse 12 whether you're Jew or Gentile by by background, to all who did receive him, that's Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children, it says, not born of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Wonderfully, through Christ Christ, God makes us his own. He causes us to be reborn, made alive, not by our own decision-making, but through his work, born of God. Before we act, God regenerates. He has made me, he sees me, he comes to me, he takes me, and he adopts me. The beginning of my life as a child of God is him. Of course, we become conscious of that when we receive and, and believe in Christ. and those two things are in parallel. To receive is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that he's the perfect and obedient man, whose obedience to the Father who sent him through his death and his life attains for us the right to become God's children. And to believe is to receive, to welcome and honor Him as our Savior and as our Lord. Faith flows from its source, which you know should provide us with incredible confidence. Because if your faith is in Christ, it means that united to him and as a child of God, all of his rights and privileges and blessings as a son belong to you also. It's not something that you have to wait for at the end of time or when you die. It's not something you, have to, you, you can earn because you can't. It's established and available now in Christ. In Christ, you are a child of God. You've been brought in to share in his life. He gave you the right to become a child of God. That's the privilege of the Christian. Carry that with you. But our right as children of God is not it. Our change of status is not even the end of the gospel. Our right as children of God leads to the final word we're reflecting on this morning, which is this, sight. Hopefully many of you will remember from our sermons in, in, um, in Haggai how God's presence was tied to the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. Not because God was bound by walls. It was simply the means he graciously provided for people to enjoy fellowship with him. And the same was true of God's people when they were led out of slavery from Egypt some years earlier. At that point, they didn't have a temple. They were on the move, traveling through the desert. Instead, they had a tabernacle, a tent of meeting. And as a sign of God's presence, the Lord covered it with a cloud of his glory. And it was where Moses, the leader of God's people, would go and hear and speak with the Lord. And on one such occasion, immediately after the disastrous uh, golden calf incident, which led to a right judgment of the people, Moses went in to speak to the Lord in the tent of meeting on behalf of everyone. And according to his goodness, the Lord assured Moses that he remained faithful to his promises and that he would remain with them. But that wasn't all the Lord did for Moses that day. For Moses' sake, he also displayed his goodness. The Lord took Moses and he hid him in a cleft of a rock so that Moses wouldn't die when the Lord caused his glory to pass by. And when the glory passed by, the Lord allowed Moses just to see something, to see, that the, the scripture says, to see God's back. Now, what does that mean? Because God doesn't have a back. He doesn't have parts in a body like us. Rather, what the Lord allowed Moses to see was God's majesty manifested towards Moses, according to Moses' capacity as a human being. No one has ever seen God because God, in his essence, is uncreated. He's spirit, invisible. If he were created, he wouldn't be God. But in God's absolute kindness, God gave Moses a sign of his presence. And this is why the incarnation is so unique and so mind blowing because verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth, the divine, eternal, uncreated son took on human flesh and tabernacled among us he was sent as the incarnate word in order that the unseen god might be revealed to us now that still doesn't mean that we can see the inner realities of the triune god the son like the father and the spirit retains his divine nature nevertheless in him we see one who is god even if what we see is his humanity. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of God's goodness and glory towards us, his creatures. Moses' experience of seeing God's back was only a shadowy anticipation of this event. And that's why, in verse 16, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, came through Jesus Christ. And so what all this means is this. Even if we can't see completely, because verse 18, no one has ever seen God. With the eyes of faith, which are given to us when we're born of God, we can know God truly. Because the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. For those in Christ, children of God, the intimacy that the incarnate Son enjoys with the Father enables our restoration and our participation in the life of God. Now, that the um, mind-blown emoji would come in really handy right now, but I don't have that up and ready on PowerPoint. And there's no wonder that John is described as like an eagle. These are huge realities. That said, please don't be discouraged if you can't grasp it. I can't either. And that's sort of the point. Until the the new creation, we won't see things as they really are. And even then, because God is infinite, wonderfully, there will always be more to see of him. And so, having meditated on those themes today of light, spite, right, and sight, there can only be one fitting response delight. Delight in Him today. Whatever else is going on out there in this global pandemic or in here in our frailness and our anxious hearts, we can turn our gaze to Christ and find light and life in our good and glorious God. Later, we'll sing these words. Come, behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing and in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ, who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Amen.